Welcome back, ladies, to the Femme Future podcast. I'm excited today to be speaking with Dr. Laura Brighton. If you have not heard of her work, you will definitely be looking it up after this podcast. Affectionately known as the Period Revolutionary, Dr. Laura Bryden is a naturopathic doctor and author of the best-selling books Period Repair Manual and Hormone Repair Manual. She has more than 20 years' experience in women's health and currently has consulting rooms in Christchurch, New Zealand, where she treats women with PCOS, PMS, endometriosis, perimenopause, and many other hormone and period-related health problems. Her works are so integral to women's health that if I was in charge of all of women's health, I would just require that they were standard reading. I highly recommend picking up a copy if you haven't already read it. Dr. Brighton, I'm so excited to have you. I recommend your PCOS flowchart all the time in my support group. And I know that women have found it very helpful on their journey with PCOS. I would love to kind of dig into PCOS. It tends to have as many myths as endo does. And so for the purposes of this conversation, I'm going to do my best and try to stick with PCOS, but I will interchange and I know we will discuss endo a little bit because I just can't help myself. So to get us started, can you give us a little bit of background on where are we with PCOS? You have really updated, amazing information in your book. Uh, Why are we still struggling with so many myths? And can you kind of set us straight? Why is it that women are still told, oh, we scanned your ovaries, you have PCOS? And that's not necessarily the case. Well, the name of the condition, for one thing, which they never should have called polycystic ovary anything. That's that had just created a lot of confusion because, as you know, you can have the hormonal condition PCOS and not have polycystic ovaries. And conversely, you can easily have polycystic ovaries and not have the hormonal condition PCOS. So the ultrasound diagnosis is as close to useless as it's possible to be. So that's part of the problem. The other thing that's happening with PCOS is that it's not one thing, right? I first of all say my paraphrasing of the official definition, which is that PCOS is best defined as the condition of androgen excess and possible anovulation when all other causes of androgen excess have been ruled out. And that's a paraphrasing of the official definition, which is a clinical heterogeneous entity, the emphasis on the word heterogeneous, which we can come back to, of female androgen excess diagnosed by exclusion of other disorders responsible for androgen excess. So in other words, it's like your junk drawer, like anyone who's got androgen excess who doesn't have congenital adrenal hyperplasia or doesn't have high prolactin or doesn't have other explanations for androgen excess, it's thrown in altogether under this diagnostic umbrella. It's an umbrella diagnosis, which means it's describing It's describing the symptom of androgen excess as as far as the diagnosis goes. And of course, logically, we know you can come to the place of androgen excess from lots of different physiological routes. So you've got apples and oranges. You've got people who 100% need a low-carb diet because they've got that insulin-resistant picture very strongly, and that's a major driving factor. And then you've got people who have nothing like that are in a totally different situation, and they're going to require something different. So I hope that's a good starting place. Like It's about acknowledging androgen excess as a symptom, but not a defined mechanism. There's other things beneath that. And I'd love to step even one step back if it's okay, because I know women are being misdiagnosed at the doctor's office. Just to interject my story, I was scanned younger and a doctor suspected me of PCOS, but it turns out I just had functional cysts. I was young and I was ovulating and that was a positive thing. So how do women know that they actually should investigate PCOS aside from the cyst component? And also, when is the cyst component, you know, something they should be addressing? Let's talk about this whole ovarian cyst side of things, because polycystic ovaries are not ovarian cysts. Like if one defines cyst as a fluid-filled structure in the ovary, ovaries are cystic structures. They contain follicles, which are fluid-filled. And they're constantly changing the number of follicles. And then, of course, if you achieve ovulation, which is a major goal, then you form what's called a dominant follicle, which actually looks way more like an ovarian cyst than the little follicles that are the immature follicles. So this is where a lot of the problem comes from. The word cyst should never, never be applied to this situation. So the easiest way to explain what a polycystic ovary is, it's an ovary that did not form a dominant follicle. So if you ultrasound a woman who is ovulating, has been ovulating, is in an ovulatory cycle, that 
time when you scan her, she will show a dominant follicle, which is quite a large structure. And then that follicle will be suppressing the other one. So you'll in general have fewer of the other immature follicles. To see a so-called polycystic ovary or an ovary with lots of immature follicles, it's really just saying ovulation did not occur in that ovary this month. Like it doesn't mean it's never going to occur or it never has occurred. It just means you've caught the woman in a moment when she's anovulatory for whatever reason. And keeping in mind that younger women have more follicles. So younger women always are going to have a higher follicle count. And the other thing that's been happening is that ultrasound magnification is higher. So now we're seeing more follicles just in your average woman than you would have like 30 years ago. And the kind of criteria is not keeping up with that. So I'll just quote Professor Geraldine Pryor, who's a reproductive endocrinologist who helped me with both books. She has stated, and I agree, the finding of polycystic ovaries, it means nothing. It essentially means nothing. The only reason that pelvic ultrasound is helpful in the assessment of actual polycystic ovarian syndrome is that with ongoing anovulatory cycles, that can be a thickened uterine lining, which you can see on ultrasound. So that is helpful to know about when it comes to this condition. Now, Pelvic ultrasound is very helpful for other conditions, 100%. So functional ovarian cysts are a completely different thing. Obviously, like there's tons of other things gynecologically going on that can be picked up by ultrasound. So I'm not saying ultrasound itself is useless. I'm saying the finding of polycystic ovaries essentially means nothing. It cannot diagnose or rule out androgen excess. This condition, PCOS, is by, it's all about androgen excess. So the main thing is either measurably high androgens on blood test and or symptoms of androgen excess like facial hair, strong jawline acne, hair loss potentially, when other reasons for those symptoms have been ruled out. Okay, we just said it straight. So if your doctor just diagnosed you with PCOS by looking at your ovaries through ultrasound, then you need to investigate further. And if you've had that concern in the back of your head, like maybe I did in the past, there's still other things you need to explore before that's going to be the case. So just starting from this place, it's all about the androgen excess and it's all about anovulatory cycles over time. So we've set that straight. Now women should be pretty clear about that. And I'm glad we did that. So moving from that place, and actually let's dig into the symptoms you just said, because I really want women to know what, if the cysts aren't really as much the issue, what are the major symptoms? So you said hair loss. What are some of the other like maybe odd symptoms they maybe should be looking for or that would lead them to ask these questions? And then I want to get into your PCOS flowchart because these other things that need to be ruled out are huge. Actually, before I will list the symptoms of androgen excess, but first I just want to give an example, just circling back to the ultrasound thing for a minute, because one of the things that's happening and it's documented in the scientific literature. So this is not just my observation. This is unfortunately happening. Women who have something called hypothalamic amenorrhea or losing their period due to undereating, commonly present with polycystic ovaries. Now, this is a disaster actually, because the conventional treatment for PCOS, for the actual predominant version of PCOS, which is insulin resistant, the treatment for that is to restrict the diet, right? Like to eat less or to eat less carbs. Now, imagine someone doing that when their main issue already, their starting place is undereating. They've lost their period due to undereating, and they're told PCOS based on an ultrasound, and then they eat less. This is what's happening. It's not good. Basically, you get women going for years without getting their period back and being told, oh, you have to have the pill because you can't get your period back. So I just really, for anyone listening, your body size and fat composition doesn't even come into it so much. It's actually, is there enough food coming in to get a period? And that's unfortunately becoming quite common. So Thank you for saying that. I just did an episode that I'm going to probably now air right before we air this one uh, with my good friend. She's an NTP and it's called Why You're Not Eating Enough. And I'm convinced that the trend of women, you know, restricting their diets again and getting to this really like how thin can you get is a like a scary trend again that worries me. Because when you really delve into the literature and understanding hormone balance, it's like if we don't have enough nutrients, our body does not work. And if ovulation doesn't work, nothing else really works well as a woman. So I'm concerned about these women having problems with hormones, PCOS, endo, all of these problems, and then all of a sudden restricting their diets to the point where their body is like, I'm always in fight flight and not getting what I need. And so it's unable to heal. And that's not the point. That's not why you're trying to, you know, lay off certain food groups and things like that. So anyway, I'm glad you said that because just because you have a condition or a thing that you're trying to address doesn't mean that you need to reduce your 
intake to air and water. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. Your body needs nutrients. Especially if your condition of no period is because you've been under eating. To begin with. Yeah, we're going to get into the symptoms. But I just want to offer the tests that I find very helpful that I rely on with my own work with patients. And that is the ratio between LH and FSH. I do find that incredibly helpful. It's a blood test. And if you're everyone listening, if, if you are cycling, if you're having periods, like real, not pill bleeds, but like real periods of some kind, even if they're irregular, you want to try to time that test around day two or three of your bleed, because that's kind of your baseline level of the hormones. There's a danger if the test gets accidentally timed to around ovulation, you will get a very confusing result. So that's why the timing is quite important. Now, if you're not having any periods at all, you have to do just a random day for this test, that's fine. But if you happen to get your period exa almost exactly two weeks after the test, then that was ovulation and you can't use the result. But assuming it's a baseline level and not a pre-ovulatory day when you did the sample, with PCOS, LH is high compared to FSH. Both hormones increase with age. So there's no kind of absolute level like you know, eventually with menopause, they're both very high. So it depends on your age, but what's important is the ratio between them. So with androgen excess picture, typically, not always, unfortunately, but usually LH is high, at least double FSH or maybe higher. With under eating, LH is extremely suppressed. Like LH can be down in the like below one kind of thing with, especially with really strong under eating. So that can be a clue. I mean, it could either be kind of one-to-one -one with FSH with under eating potentially or even lower. So that's helpful for troubleshooting. In terms of the symptoms, like how do we define androgen excess? The most helpful is hirsutism, facial hair, body hair. If that's present, if there's really almost any degree, I mean, I'll say a significant degree of body hair, you get there's different systems where they can grade how strong the hirsutism is, like a little bit of upper lip Hair is not enough to define it usually, but it's, it's going to be like maybe stronger upper lip, maybe hair on the jawline, hair on the throat, you know, hair on the belly, coarser hairs on the arms and legs. So that's this. We start to get the picture. That's pretty clear evidence of androgen exposure. Then there's the jawline acne. I mean, you can get breakouts for different reasons, and this gets complicated by post pill, which we'll talk about. Which is that's one of my functional types of PCOS. But usually, if if it's a strong jawline acne or pimples that's not responding to other treatments, that can be a sign of androgen excess. You can also get thinning hair loss, especially like at the temples and kind of in the front, that male pattern hair loss can start to happen. And unfortunately, if that's allowed to exist for too long, that can become irreversible. So that's something to think about. And then on blood test, from the androgen side of things, it would be high testosterone, low SHBG. This is a sex hormone binding globulin. This is a, quite a good marker of PCOS some types of PCOS and high other androgens like DHEAS or androstenedion. And then with the insulin resistant type of PCOS, we're going to get into the types. There can be obviously all then the metabolic markers like high insulin, high triglycerides, that type of thing. This is how it's diagnosed. And then the other part of it is I keep coming back to is the other things ruled out. For example, prolactin needs to be tested because if the hormone prolactin is very high, that can create an androgen picture. And then I would say when high prolactin is the main factor, that's actually something different. That's high prolactin. That's not PCOS, even though it has androgen symptoms. The other quite common one is called adrenal hyperplasia. There's a blood test called 17-hydroxyprogesterone, which is a test for that genetic condition. It's actually quite common. It's not unusual to have been told you have PCOS, but actually you have adrenal hyperplasia. So that this is where it's important to have a proper medical workup. Now, the thing I want to say at this point is that Pain, like significant pelvic pain, is not a symptom of PCOS, like absolutely not. So this is something that I see a lot as a clinician that a woman goes to her doctor for pretty severe pain, which is, ends up being endometriosis, of course. But because it's not that easy to diagnose endometriosis, the doctor does a pelvic ultrasound and says, oh, you've got polycystic ovaries. And then they come away thinking PCOS is causing all this pain. And then they're trying like a low-carb diet for endometriosis. I'm like, this is not, like one of my messages is, if severe pain is your main symptom, regardless of whether you've been told PCOS or not, there's something else going on because it's not an explanation. 
Yeah, and that sounds almost exactly like my very first encounter with my OBGYN. Is I was in extreme pain, and she didn't know what to do. And I told my story previously, so I won't go too far. But basically, she started throwing things at me because she didn't want it to be endo. I mean, I appreciate the sentiment, but that's not really helpful in getting to the rock-bottom issue of what was going on. So she kept hoping, like, well, let's hope it's PCOS. Let's hope it's something. And she was trying to, like, throw these other diagnoses on me that were not correct. And because she thought that, you know, endometriosis was going to be this like lifetime terrible sentence for me. And she didn't want me to have that, which I, I appreciate again, that she cared enough, but that wasn't helpful. It actually just delayed my diagnosis, made my endo worse. And then I had to have a more severe surgery. So I wish she would have just got to the point early on, but it's like, you can't diagnose endo easily with an ultrasound. And so then she kind of moved to PCOS. So in, in the event that a doctor of uh, any woman's listening to us, that a doctor is doing that, you might not want to delay time. And if it's pain, get to the rock bottom issue of what's really happening there. 100%. Cause of the pain would be endo, adenomyosis, pelvic floor issues, obviously infection and things like that, which need to be ruled out. I'm just doing a few quick kind of rundown of some of the like an, a proper ovarian cyst, like not the polycystic ovaries, but ovarian cysts can cause pain. And those rupturing are extremely painful. Oh, well, of course, yeah. Like a ruptured cyst is very serious. Won't it be good if and when, I think it's a matter of when, we have a blood test or a, another kind of non-invasive test for endometriosis? It's the kind of disease that has biomarkers. So the fact that we've gone this long without a blood test actually really surprises me because I feel like that's coming soon. So then it'll take some of the confusion out of the diagnostic path. I'm really excited about that. And I do think there's uh, like the Rose study and there's some other studies that are happening right now that are really legitimate, knowledgeable researchers and knowledgeable doctors backing it. And I'm hoping that they do get those biomarkers into our hands quicker rather than later, because it's like this is taking a big toll in women's lives. But I don't know that there'll ever be like a definitive blood test because of the way endo acts. And it's so mysterious and kind of enigmatic the way it works. But I know that we would at least have enough confidence to say, we're pretty sure that you need to go further in this journey of figuring out what's going on. All right. So tell us a little bit about these functional types of PCOS and how do women get to the bottom of this? Because I always send this flow chart out and then I know women are probably like, what is this flow chart? What are, you, what are you making us do homework, April? And I'm like, yeah, I make you do homework in my support group. That flow chart was born out of my 20 years with patients, where pretty early on I came to realize what I've just been explaining, that the label of PCOS is not enough to decide on treatment. There's so many different reasons someone could end up with androgen excess and under this umbrella. So I'm like, I want to get results for my patients. So it's like, let's think this through. What is driving the androgen excess? I mean, in terms of ultimate cause, there's genetic factors, there's epigenetic factors. So given the current situation you're in, what are the things that we could change that are actually pushing you into androgen excess? So that's where this came from. They're, they're functional types. They're obviously different than the PCOS phenotype that came out of Rotterdam, the sort of the four phenotypes based on whether you have polycystic ovaries or anovulatory cycles, which are, I find, not very helpful from a clinical perspective. So this is from a clinical perspective. So the first step in the flowchart, is it actually PCOS? And this is actually an important step, mainly because this is where you can discover, oh, no, it's actually hypothalamic amenorrhea. It's under eating. And there's a whole group of women who need to stop at that first step and think this is actually not PCOS. Now, the way you know it's not PCOS is if you don't have significant androgen symptoms, like as you don't have significant facial hair. Like I'll say again, there might be a little bit of a few hairs on the upper lip, but that's not the same thing. Which complicates it is actually there could be a bit of post-pill androgen surge, but we'll talk about that. You can, you can have post-pill acne and be under eating those two things together, which unfortunately does still fall under the PCOS diagnostic umbrella. But the first thing is to think about, are there significant androgen symptoms? Because if not, it's not PCOS. And I know that's a bit different than, say, the Rotterdam criteria, which allows for a non-androgenic PCOS type, which I just don't agree with. And several experts are like, that makes no sense. If it's not high antigens, it's not PCOS. It's, there's something else going on. So that's step one. Then step two is, okay, if you're like, yes, it's definitely androgen excess. That's the primary thing that's going on. The next step in the flowchart is, do you have insulin resistance? Because that's very important. And if you do have insulin resistance, you don't need to keep going down the chart, like down the flowchart. That's where you stop. And the way you find out if you have insulin resistance is not to test glucose because a normal glucose on blood test means nothing really. 
Ideally, you need to test insulin, which is what I do with my patients, a glucose tolerance test with insulin or fasting insulin in some more severe cases or high triglycerides, high something, uh, one of the liver enzymes, ALT can be high weight gain around the middle. Although to be fair, it is possible to have insulin resistance and be a normal body weight too, which complicates it a little bit. But if you have insulin resistance and you have androgens, then at least part of your strategy needs to be to reverse insulin resistance. And that will help to improve. That's, this is where the lower carb diet comes in. This is where, you know, magnesium and all all these things come in. They're all insulin sensitizing metformin. So this is where the standard kind of medical treatment would come in, exercise. And that works well for women with what I call type 1 insulin resistant PCOS. It works amazing for them. And interestingly, because that conventional advice works so well for that type of PCOS, I see less of that type of PCOS in my own clinic than I do the other types because it's easy to get answers for that type, right? Like that's the what you're seeing online. And to be fair, the insulin resistant type of PCOS is the majority. It's about 70 to 80% of women who are diagnosed with PCOS have insulin resistance. So it's pretty major, obviously. So that's type one. So if you go through that, it's like, I definitely, I have androgens, but I don't have insulin resistance. My next stop on the flow chart is, are you trying to come off birth control pills that have an anti-androgen drug in them? They're often prescribed for acne to teenagers. But the problem is they have a withdrawal syndrome. So when you come off them, you get a surge in androgens and often acne goes along with that. There can be some mild mild hirsutism as well. So it's a temporary withdrawal syndrome, but it can cause a lot of havoc while it's happening because then it's very scary to be told, like, you come off the pill expecting you're going to go back to normal how you were before, and then you've got this whole androgen thing happening. So post-pill, I define as you basically were, had no problems before you went on the pill and then try to come off the pill. This is what's going on. So to be fair, the androgen symptoms, if anyone trying to come off those anti-androgen drugs will get a worsening of androgen symptoms. That's true for women with insulin-resistant PCOS as well. But with insulin-resistant PCOS, it's still, the focus is still on the insulin. I want to say something else about hormonal birth control. So depending on the type of progestin used in the birth control, there's no progesterone in any type of birth control. Progesterone is actually anti-androgen. It's very beneficial. We could talk about that. I have a scientific paper that I wrote about that. Progestins are in different categories. On the extreme ends, there's the progestins that are anti-antigen. Well, that's drospirone and cipterone we just talked about. And they have a withdrawal syndrome when you try to come off. On the other end, uh, quite a number of them, including a very common one called levonorgestrel, which is in the hormonal IUD and lots of things, is androgenic. It's like testosterone. It's very testosterone-like, actually. So women who develop acne on the pill or on hormonal birth control, on the depot injection, on implants, on the hormonal IUD, those androgens are from the progestin, if that makes sense. So you can have an androgen problem from the drugs themselves or from trying to come off an anti-androgen drug. I'm glad that you stopped to do that because I was going to stop you to talk about that really briefly because the other article I post a lot in my support group in response, just because you're such a great writer that synthesizes all these things that I've read almost better than I can synthesize them. I'm working on it. I'm trying to be like you when I grow up. But you, you take these really complex ideas and complex you know, research studies and you drive them down to like a few paragraphs, which is brilliant because it's really hard to take that much information and pack it into something someone understands in two paragraphs. But women with endo are frequently at this point, very highly prescribed progestins. And they don't know that. They're thinking that they're getting progesterone. And so I'm constantly saying, well, do your homework. What you just said your doctor prescribed you is actually a progestin, not a progesterone. Progesterone is bioidentical and it should act like progesterone would act in your body. And I have to explain this a lot in my support group. So I love that you wrote that article because it's just such a simple way of understanding that. But progestins do not act in the body, as you just mentioned, the same way as progesterone does. And you get different effects and it's confusing because, again, women are getting prescribed these things to help with the problem, and they're getting worse other problems because of it, and it's really not getting to the root issue that the whole thing started in the first place. Yeah, so the article, I think the one you're talking about, I have a blog post called The Crucial Difference Between Progestins and Progesterone. So I'm going to speak to that for a little bit, and then we'll continue our journey down the types. But as I explain in both my books, you can use progesterone for both endometriosis and PCOS, actually. It can be really quite helpful. To be fair, well, we'll just touch on briefly, endometriosis is not a hormonal condition. So there always has to be a whole other immune gut side to treating endo. But 
if you are going to add in some hormonal downregulation, like progesterone generally has a downregulating effect on endometriosis lesions. It also has a calming effect on immune function, which is good. So real progesterone can actually be quite great for endometriosis. It's available in the U.S. as Prometrium. Other countries have called Eutrogestin. It goes by a few different brand names, but it's body identical real progesterone. I talk about it in my books. Professor Geraldine Pryor, who I mentioned, she has some protocols on her website, the Center for Menstruation and Ovulation Research. The one difference with, well, progesterone cannot, usually does not suppress ovulation, so it can't be relied upon for contraception, but it can certainly help with symptoms and arguably more helpful than progestins. So there's that. The other thing I want to say about the progestins that are testosterone-like or androgenic, they can cause weight gain. So here's a piece of information about women's health that I think is quite important. Anything testosterone or any androgen or androgenic birth control that's above a certain level, like too much testosterone, causes or worsens insulin resistance. And then it goes the other way too, because insulin resistance stimulates testosterone. But there is definitely this testosterone causing insulin resistance. So that's why, in a nutshell, some types of hormonal birth control cause weight gain and some don't. And it's the androgenic ones that cause weight gain. And it's drugs like Yasmin, the Jospinone, in that they arguably would promote weight loss, um, especially in women with androgen excess. Of course, that comes at a cost because there's other problems that that's doing. But so hopefully that's clear on the topic of progestins. Yes, that's that's very helpful. I know just that bit alone, many women in my support group will find helpful. So because they always ask questions about that too. Like I just started this, you know, birth control and there's still too much gaslighting in women's medicine, right? You know, they go to their doctor, I gained all this weight. Oh, it wasn't your birth control. No, it was the birth control. I wasn't gaining weight and now I'm gaining weight, you know, things like that. So it's good to know, like, does it have an androgen effect, the particular birth control that you're on? You can kind of troubleshoot some of this. Honestly, I really don't get it actually. Why the medical protocol to prescribe androgenic progestins for PCOS, I just really can't even comprehend. Like it's actually worsening the insulin resistance. It's worsening the symptoms. So, I mean, if anything, there's a, you know, more of an argument for the anti-androgen drugs, but like I said, they have some downsides too. But before we leave the topic of contraceptive drugs and the pill, if this hasn't been clear already, I think we already referred to like pill bleeds versus real periods. Just to be clear, the pill cannot regulate the menstrual cycle. Like hands down, it never could. The language around that is very weird and misleading. So a monthly cycle, the whole reason a cycle is monthly is because of ovulation. That's how the ovaries work. It's about a approximately monthly ovulation. That's a healthy hormonal system. The pill suppresses ovarian function, induces a temporary chemical menopause, and then induces a drug withdrawal bleed that doesn't have to be monthly. It could be every three months or it never. Like it means nothing. The monthly bleed on the pill was always just to try to mimic a menstrual cycle, but it doesn't serve any purpose. And I think a lot of doctors think it too. I think they actually think that we're kind of inducing a regular menstrual cycle. I don't quite know where their brain is at with it, but what the young women I talk to, my patients and my readers, when they find out they've been taking the pill to regulate the cycle and that it can't actually do that, they feel pretty betrayed and I don't blame them. In fact, it's the opposite, so much the opposite. It's not regulating the cycle and it's actually going to make it harder to have a regular cycle when you come off it, the thing that contraceptive drugs can do for PCOS is the anti, like the jospernone can suppress, can lessen androgen symptoms. And so that can give relief, obviously, from acne and facial hair. But there's other ways to do that. Yeah, there's always another way. And what I've found in my own journey is there's ways that actually teach you about your body, let you learn more about yourself. And I think at the end of the day, the thing I was robbed of for several years that I was probably most upset about is that I could have been learning those things sooner about myself and taking better care of myself so that I could iron out those issues and just move on with my life. And instead, I spent kind of years in this weird cycle of birth control and all these other weird things they wanted to prescribe to me that actually didn't get to the root issue of what was really going on. So I'm all about like, if you're having an emergency crazy year and you need to use something as a temporary Band-Aid, at least use the right Band-Aid, like you're saying, for the problem. So that's one thing. And then know it's a Band-Aid because eventually your body is very interesting. It's really smart and it knows, okay, it's great that you gave me this patch, but eventually the issue continues and it will need more investigation and serious intervention, or at least mine did. It just at some point, everything just stopped working for me. A lot of women I talk to, things tend to just stop working for you one day. And that's when your body's like, time out. You need to pay attention to me and actually figure out what I'm trying to tell you. One thing to understand, and this might be helpful for people contemplating a return to 
natural cycles or ovulatory menstrual cycles is that the hormones estradiol, our main estrogen, and progesterone that we make with ovulation and that obviously I mentioned you could take as prometrium, but both of those hormones have a beneficial anti-androgen effect. So it becomes kind of what you're saying, like the body's smart. So if you can start ovulating, the hormones you start making will feed back and suppress androgens, which will make it easier to ovulate. In fact, interestingly, PCOS is like a paused adolescence or like a paused puberty. So it is a normal phase, like with puberty, like with, you know, probably 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, we go through that. At that age, we go through an androgen dominant state. So we'll be quite androgen excess. So it's normal for teenagers to have, well, a high follicle count for one thing in their ovaries, to be anovulatory, to have insulin resistance. Actually, there's a bit of the slight insulin resistance that happens around 11, 12. You can see that with girls, they get like a little thickening around their middle. And this is before they're getting ready to ovulate, right? They're getting ready to mature into a full, normal female physiology. And so normally, if that's allowed to proceed and everything's going well, then they go through that kind of temporary PCOS state and then they start ovulating. And then the estradiol and progesterone that they make from having ovulatory cycles feeds back and reduces the androgen excess and they carry on with a normal menstrual cycle. So that's just to give a background. So it's like, PCOS is like you're kind of frozen in this continuous sort of puberty state, which is, again, there's lots of reasons that you could end up there. It's not through anything women have done wrong. Usually there is a strong epigenetic effect. So what the research shows, it's a very strong effect. Girls who are exposed to high androgens in utero as fetuses have a five times higher risk of PCOS or androgen excess when they get older. So it's huge. And the reason you might've been exposed to androgens in utero could be that your mom had PCOS. So that could be that could be environmental toxins, potentially progestins from, you know, before the mom became pregnant. Like this, I wouldn't be surprised actually if there's some sort of amplifying effect, partly from the androgenic progestins, but then it's amplified, right? So then if the mom had PCOS, then her daughter has five times higher risk of having PCOS. And then if she's kind of in a state of androgen excess, when she becomes pregnant, then her daughter will have, and it, a lot of it's from environmental toxins in utero too. So just to take some of the pressure off, because I think there's a lot of pressure, like women thinking, oh, I ate the wrong thing. I brought this on myself. It's it's actually not like that. Yeah. There's some really good influencers out there. There's some that I think are putting a little bit too much of a heavy burden on women. It's like, look, we can do the best we can do and we take care of ourselves the best we can. But some of these things are outside of our control. It's like some of these epigenetic things. It's like I was given a certain genetic code. I'm not going to change my genetic code. So there's certain things I kind of have to do. I've learned about myself that keeps my body in balance. But that's not the same thing for the woman next door or someone else because they have a completely different makeup to me. So it's like, you can't be too hard on yourself and being hard on yourself, just continue stress. And that definitely doesn't help with (laughs) insulin or anything when you're in high cortisol all the time. So it's like, take a load off. Some of these things just happen and they may have happened before you were born, but there are things that we can do to at least get to the bottom of them and find out how to live a normal life. Absolutely. Just one more thing about this post-pill PCOS. So this is the one that hundred percent could be temporary. All PCOS could be temporary or in many cases, but This really could be, you were fine before you ever took Yasmin. You took Yasmin for five years, just a scenario. And then you stop it and then you get jawline acne and not ovulating. And pretty much all it takes to be given the PCOS diagnosis are those two things. So you legitimately qualify for the PCOS diagnosis during that time. But once the withdrawal syndrome of from that drug is over, then you snap back into having ovulatory cycles. You make progesterone, which reduces androgens. And then you don't have PCOS anymore, basically. If you don't have the symptoms, you don't have the diagnosis. That's how this diagnosis works. But the next type is if it's not insulin resistance, it's not post-pill. This is where we get into the territory of this, this inflammatory type of PCOS. These are the people with endometriosis, autoimmune thyroid disease, SIBO, gut issues, dairy sensitivity, you know, gluten sensitivity. This is where you start to get this whole picture happening. And just to be clear, like, the women then when the more classically insulin resistant type may not have gluten sensitivity or dairy sensitivity. They may, but this is the type where there's actually something going on with the immune system. This is where you start to see the overlap between PCOS and autoimmune thyroid disease, for example. So this is the people who, when they treat their gut, when they come off gluten and dairy, can feel a lot better. They might benefit from a supplement like N-acetylcysteine, which is anti-inflammatory. It's quite helpful for endometriosis as well. 
So that's this group. And it's not the majority of PCOS, but it's definitely, it's a lot of patients I see precisely because they haven't got a response to metformin. So that's the inflammatory type. It's a lot about gut health, actually. Yeah. And just to reiterate, you can have endo and you can have PCOS then in this particular type because, again, there's like weird myths that like, well, you have PCOS, so you can't have endo or you have endo, so you can't have PCOS. And that's not true. So I just want to underline that. And in my case, this definitely became an issue for me. It was really the inflammatory endo immune system issue. And then I did start to have like weird PCOS type issues and it was a thyroid problem. And so when I tested, I had high thyroid antibodies, which I've since reversed. And yes, you can reverse it. And it's really nice to be able to naturally reverse all that back and have my immune system stop attacking myself. But that did cause serious, like all of a sudden I started having like weird weight gain. I started having jaw acne, all kinds of odd things like that were happening to me. And it was like my hair started to fall out. And I was like, what is happening to me? This is terrifying. And it was that my immune system had started to attack my thyroid and my hormones resulted. And then I started having problems with regular ovulation. So that was me. And it could be you if you're listening because you're if you're struggling with endo, that's an interesting type to explore. So that's the inflammatory PCOS. Honestly, I'd say almost by definition, if anyone listening, if they're endo and PCOS, they're probably in this type. There could also be an insulin resistant factor for some people in this category, but that's a pretty classic story, what you just told with the thyroid antibodies. And yeah, I see that a lot with my patients. And just to be clear, like just to give a bit of nuance, abnormal levels of thyroid hormone also affect periods. So if autoimmune thyroid is kind of pretty fully developed and to the point that thyroid hormone levels are out and just way beyond the inflammation, but actually your thyroid's not functioning, that affects periods. And that actually would be an exclusion to PCOS diagnosis, if you know what I mean. Like that's going back to the diagnosis of these symptoms when other causes have been ruled out. If thyroid's a cause, then that becomes the main cause. Yeah, that's the main problem, right, to address. But it is having downstream effects. And I'm glad you said that because it's going to have downstream effects on all of these things. And that's why I think I'm so tired of hearing, and I'm sure everyone is, that endo is a, a hormone problem because it's actually the wrong way of looking at the whole picture, right? It leads us to the wrong conclusions. It's like, so yes, you're going to have hormone imbalance issues, but the hormone imbalance wasn't what started the cascade in the first place. So we have to kind of go a little higher and look at it from a bigger picture. Just on the topic of endo, some women can have totally normal hormones. Right. And in full endo pain. That's not unusual, actually. I mean, you can have also, like what you're describing, have also some hormonal issues going on kind of as well. But it's a condition of the pelvic immune system slash microbiome slash, well, I really, I'm pretty convinced there's a strong, the gram-negative bacteria, the endotoxins are playing a huge role in endo. Totally. Plus some epigenetic things. It's progesterone resistance. The lesions make their own estrogen. Like there's just, there's lots of stuff going on. It's, it's not just about whether you're ovulating regularly. In fact, I mean, as you know, the medical strategy for endo is to suppress ovulation, mm-hmm. to suppress estrogen, because even a healthy, normal, perfectly, exactly what you want to have level of estrogen stimulates and worsens endometriosis because of the disease process happening with endometriosis. So my approach to endo is always to reduce the inflammation, reduce the disease process so that women can enjoy the natural ups and downs of their estrogen and get all the benefits from that and not have it flaring the condition. Yeah. And post, you know, white excision and and a, a bunch of other things, I've really enjoyed my cycle. Like I never enjoyed my cycle before. It was always like, oh my gosh, here it's coming for me, you know, kind of a thing. And now it's a, actually a really good experience because estrogen's amazing. Like my brain fires better. And, you know, we know that estrogen has an effect on the brain. It's like, so now I do my best creative work when I'm on a kind of a high estrogen kick. And then I do my best like introvert reflecting when I'm in, you know, luteal phase and with my progesterone. And so it's like, I, I will probably do a podcast on like this hormonal superpowers at some point, because as a woman, it's amazing to understand and kind of work with your cycle instead of against it. But as a woman who's had severe stage four endo, I understand and will raise my hand that I understand what it's like to kind of live in fear of your cycle because it's making things worse. It's kind of, it feels like it's bullying you. (laughs) The whole cycle is like bullying you each month, but there is reasons for that. That's good. No, I love estrogen. Estrogen is amazing. You're right. As long as you can get the endo under control, then you can just ride the the fun roller coaster of estrogen and not suffer from right. it. Right. Yeah. And it is and it is a fun roller coaster. It's like I saw a meme of like to Cinderella. It's like, oh, me coming up to ovulation. It was like Cinderella. It's like, that's what it feels like. You know, it's like, I'm going to go hang out with my friends and put on some makeup and I'm going to feel really great. It's like, so estrogen is pretty amazing, but we've demonized it, unfortunately, in the case of women with endo because of what it does with endo. But it's not 
estrogen's fault. So we need to figure out what else is going on to help the body heal. So I'm glad we talked about that briefly. So adrenal PCOS, and then let's see, we're, we only have a little bit of time left. So maybe you can just give us a little bit more uh, direction on where women can go to get some of these treatments and some of these steps that they should look into if they've found out this is the problem. So adrenal PCOS is the least common. It's probably less than 10% of women with the PCOS diagnosis. It's a very different situation. And if you're listening, you'll know this is you. Like it is predominantly the hormone DHEAS, the adrenal androgen, well, it's, hence the name, adrenal PCOS. DHEAS is high. It's been calibrated high at some point in utero or possibly in childhood. Like it's, there's a genetic component, it's epigenetic components. It's a little bit harder to treat because... Okay, there can be quite strong symptoms. It's not unusual with adrenal PCOS that actually ovulation is happening because the ovaries are pretty much doing what they're supposed to be doing. So you may, unlike the, all the other types where one of the main goals is to get ovulation going, ovulation may already be happening with adrenal PCOS, but there's still this androgen picture. You have to just push down on the androgens. It's, um, this is similar. Adrenal PCOS is similar to adrenal hyperplasia, except that adrenal PCOS is not genetic. So with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, there's a gene test. The doctor or the endocrinologist can say, yes, they could tell, you know, that that's what it is. And adrenal PCOS, is kind of, it's basically the same picture, but probably from epigenetic factors rather than genetic factors. And it's hard to treat. So I come in with adrenal PCOS, I come in with all the anti-androgen things like zinc, and I use a bit of something called DIM, um, diendylmethane. You can use the herbal medicine licorice, but you do need to be careful because it can cause high blood pressure. But licorice, it does help to regulate the adrenal glands to kind of a strong, a higher cortisol, lower DHEA state. So that's, yeah, that's the adrenal type. My colleague, Dr. Fiona McCullough, I don't know if you've met her. She, she's written a bit on adrenal PCOS, so I always kind of refer to some of her knowledge about that. So she's also very brilliant with PCOS. So in terms of the treatments, so it's about Obviously, understanding which, if you can, like, you know, which type you're in and then focusing on that. So for insulin resistance, it's, it involves diet. It involves exercise. Metformin could be helpful there. It involves cutting sugar and getting enough protein and potentially doing a gentle overnight fast and taking magnesium and taking inositol. Inositol, as you know, is a superstar for PCOS. It really is. It's that supplement is, I'm a huge fan, can help to restore ovulation which then will help to reduce androgens. Also some of the anti-androgen treatments, trying to restore ovulation. And also with post-pill, it's about just trusting the body and knowing it's going to be temporary. Post-pill acne usually peaks. It's usually at its worst between six to 12 months coming off the pill. So there'll be like a three-month honeymoon where you're fine. And then at about three months, it starts to kick in and then it, it can get really bad. Like post-pill acne can be really, really quite appalling actually. Who might be listening is someone who's tried to come off the pill before, got terrible post-pill acne, retreated back to the pill because they're like, this is crazy. I must be really broken. My skin must be, you know, disaster. And I'm just saying to you, the next time you come off the pill, be ready. So, you know, come off Caldary often is necessary for treating acne. Get on a good quality zinc supplement and maybe some dim and just ride it out knowing that you can't almost avoid some degree of post-pill acne, but after about a year, it should really start to settle down. There's always a lag time with skin. There's an even longer lag time with hair. I hope people know that. Like if you've got facial hair or hair loss, or even if you were to get started on the exact right treatment, like perfect right treatment, it might be, well, with hair loss, it might be six months before you see a change. Like this, there's a lag time. Yeah, that's a long time. And just for someone wanting results. I know it is because unfortunately, because of the lag time, there can be a bit of confusion because people start a treatment even if it's the right treatment, their hair loss gets worse because it was going to anyway, because it's responding to something six months prior. And then they're like, oh my God, that treatment made my hair worse. So then they get off the right treatment and start, you know, trying. So I'll say to my patients, look, we're going to start treatment today, but I'm telling you there's hair loss coming in the next few months and there's nothing we can do about it. It's already, it's pre-programmed from before. That's a reality with hair. Right. So then inflammatory PCOS is, it's always gluten-free. It's Selenium, it's fixed, it's addressed if there's SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, it's addressing that, addressing intestinal permeability, all of that. Probiotics, certain types of probiotics, depending on what's going on. There could be a histamine component to the inflammatory PCOS. So if you have a mast cell activation or histamine picture, you want to get on top of that. And then the adrenal one, we've talked about it, sort of licorice and anti-androgen symptoms. And then for all of them, to be fair, well, especially the first three types where there's a ovulatory dysfunction can benefit from something called cyclic progesterone therapy. So we talked about that earlier, like using Prometrium 
instead of a progestin, basically cycling. So cycling means two weeks on, two weeks off. Eventually you try timing that with the luteal phase. So basically the way it works is while you're taking the progesterone, it has a beneficial anti-androgen effect. It feeds back on the hypothalamus. So then the hypothalamus is, finds an easier time to ovulate the next cycle. So hopefully that's helpful. That's kind of a broad strokes overview of treatment. Yeah, it is. And and I think it'll just be really enlightening for women who are really still in the midst of struggling with this. And it's frustrating. I know how frustrating it can be. So I'm glad that you came on to shed a little bit of light. And, you know, for people who are more of audio listeners instead of readers, we broke down the entire PCOS flowchart for you. So you are now informed and you know what to do uh, to move on. Now, any tips or insights on, I know you and there's several others, but it's it's kind of difficult to still find doctors who are really knowledgeable about these things. I'm always teaching women how to interview their doctor about endo. So do you have any tips on how women can find a doctor that would be a good fit for them? Yeah, in terms of finding a doctor, I mean, I guess I would argue a naturopathic doctor or an ND like I am. It's a good, probably a good starting place. In Period Repair Manual, my book, I do have a how to speak to your doctor section. So that would contain questions like, you know, if your doctor is prescribing the pill, then you could say, hmm, well, actually, I've heard that the pill worsens insulin resistance and that, you know, actually finding a way to ovulate regularly is a, is a better plan. Like, I'd like to try that. You know, could you support me in that? And I think, you know, depending on the doctor, I think even some family doctors will, will respond to that. At least some of the more enlightened ones or modern ones will think, okay, yeah, we can work with that. I, I would say for what it's even when you're speaking with your own doctor, do mention inositol because just to circle back to that supplement, it has reached the big time in that it is was included in the evidence-based international PCOS guidelines in 2018 and Alcetol was there as a treatment option. So that is great news because it means the doctor can be like, right, yes, you're on an evidence-based treatment for, so we can try to proceed with that. So yeah, what you need from the doctor is the testing potentially. So the FSH-LH testing I talked about earlier, potentially testing for insulin resistance. And then you will have that information. You can apply that to your treatment plan. And go from there. Okay. No, I think that is very helpful. And yes, for sure, go back to the book and take that section. You have a very good section on how to talk to your doctor as well. So take a photocopy of it if you need to, or transcribe it and take a copy with you. I tell women to print off my questions. I have a 17 questions to ask a doctor before endometriosis surgery. And so I say, just print it off and literally take it with you. That way you don't have to feel nervous because I know it can be, you know, nerve wracking to interview a doctor sometimes. So yeah, the other thing for talking to the doctor about PCOS is I just want to go back just briefly to the thickened uterine lining. So very often when the, if the doctor's pushing the pill, that's why they're concerned about this thickened uterine lining. So then you can outright ask them, it's like, is my uterine lining thickened on the ultrasound. Is that what you're worried about? And to be fair, you can use the cyclic progesterone to treat that as well. Like, so you could say, for example, I've got this information about the cyclic progesterone protocol. We could put the link on your website from Professor Pryor's site. You know, I understand that can do the same job as the pill in terms of reducing this thickened uterine lining. And if there's no thickened uterine lining, that's actually a sign that it's actually under eating because all typically with true PCOS, there will be some degree of thickened uterine lining, at least only until you get the cycles happening. So just the whole thickened uterine lining, this is where the cancer warning comes in. So some doctors will take the line. It's like, well, if you don't take the pill, you're going to get cancer. And then often women will be thinking, oh, because of the ovaries or something like, is it the over? No, it's like what they're talking about is if you went for decades with a thickened uterine lining and not ovulating, that becomes a risk for uterine lining cancer. It would be a very long-term risk. But at least if you kind of know that's what your doctor's talking about, then you could think, okay, well, actually there's other ways to improve the uterine lining and reduce that risk without going on the pill. Hopefully that makes sense. That makes sense. And thank you for sharing that because that's another thing is I just don't like that women are always kind of being terrified of the doctor's office. You know, it's like, if we don't do this, you're going to get cancer. It's I like, know. I don't know if you can say something more scary. And then women are kind of bullied sometimes, unfortunately, into odd treatments that aren't even helping with the root cause. So, you know, pro of what they're dealing with. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's, I mean, those are really important things. You need to go back women. I'm going to have a transcription. So like take what Dr. Bryden just said and like write those things down to ask your doctor questions questions about those specific things in regards to your case, because every case is different. Yeah. And before we close up today, I just wanted to 
touch on one of my favorite questions, which is what are you most excited about now and in the future in women's medicine? What's emerging in the field that you were just ecstatic about and you'd love to you know, share real quick? I mean, I guess my new passion is perimenopause. I mean, that's my second book. It's all about for women over 35. It's second puberty. It's about reframing what that even means and sort of uncoupling that from aging and the stigma around aging and kind of reclaiming it. So I'm actually super passionate about perimenopause. I'm about to graduate to menopause myself, which feels way different than I thought it would. It's actually kind of yeah, sort of interesting. I mean, so anyone listening who's in their late 30s into their 40s, get my second book, Hormone Repair Manual, which is all about this process. Yeah. And I, I highly recommend doing that book, even if you're not at that age yet, because it's, I'm excited that you wrote about it. So I know what to expect that is normal, not normal, you know, again, kind of just getting my brain wrapped around that. And my whole job, I feel like in life is sort of getting rid of these myths around women's health. Yeah. So it, your book really helps dispel these myths about aging, about what it means to go into menopause, things like that. So I think it's a great book. And even if you aren't at menopause age, which I'm not there yet, but it's been very helpful. And you have great endosexual as well in that yes. book, which was, I love that you did a brief little excerpt on that. You kind of went in depth in ways you didn't go in period repair manual into some other things. So I'd say that book is valuable regardless of your age. Well, what happened with that is that actually by the time I wrote the second book, there was more information about endo, more research on this whole microbiome immune aspect. So I was able to incorporate more of that because for what it's worth, and this is not probably not going to be good news for some of your listeners, but Endo can worsen in your 40s, right? Endo and adeno, adenomyosis, unfortunately, like eventually with menopause, it should potentially at least partially resolve. But in 40s are a dangerous time for conditions that respond negatively to high estrogen because our 40s are a time of up to three times higher estrogen than we had in our 30s. So yeah, that's why it's in the book. It um, can be a scary time, unfortunately. As we're talking, I've already talked about your book several times, but where can women engage with you? What are the best platforms and the best ways of connecting with your work? I'm easy to find. So my blog is larabryden.com. For example, that's where you'll find that blog post you were talking about, the crucial difference between progestins and progesterone. All my social media is at larabryden, which is really just Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And then my two books are Period Repair Manual and Hormone Repair Manual. Awesome. And as I said, and I'll say it again, if you don't have copies, go out and buy yourself a copy on Amazon. It's really good. Thank you so much for being on the Femme Future podcast today, Dr. Bryden. I'm going to have to have you come back and we'll have to kind of nerd out and talk a little bit about some of this emerging endo research that's just coming out. I hope that this was enlightening and helpful for many women listening. And thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Future podcast was created and is hosted by April Summerford, executive podcast producer Mather DeLeon. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including April Summerford and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.